surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. Welcome to Let's Talk About It with Taylor Nolan. I am your host, and today I am here with a very special guest. And I know I say all my guests are special, but this one in particular um, I'm very, very excited about as I have watched her on Couples Therapy's uh, VH1. And uh, she's also an author, a radio host, um, just really does a little bit of everything. Um, Licensed psychotherapist here in Beverly Hills. Um, So welcome, Dr. Jen, to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for coming to my office. Yes, thank you for having me. This is really exciting for me to be here, honestly. Um, Did not not ever think as I was sitting on the couch with my mom watching couples therapy that (laughs) I would eventually be in your office uh, having a conversation with you. So it's very exciting for me. Well, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so we have a lot of listeners that are um, entering into the mental health field or are interested in it. Um, And so I'd love to kind of get a little bit of your background into how you decided off on this journey to become a licensed psychotherapist and, um, you know, what that journey was kind of been like for you. Um, well, I come from a very therapy positive family. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad actually, I was named after my dad's first therapist when he was 18. Wow. Okay. So I, and I didn't, I knew I was named after a doctor of his, mm-hmm. but I didn't know until I was already a licensed therapist that it was actually his therapist. So yeah. you can imagine that that kind of family is very mm-hmm. therapy oriented. Um, when mm-hmm. I was in college, I was planning to be a journalist, a photojournalist and print journalist, and maybe some TV here and there. Mm-hmm. And I did a story about rape on college campuses. Okay. And when I started doing the research for that column and I started interviewing women on my campus and there were four women in particular that had been date raped by one man in particular who went to prison Mm -hmm. and was going to be getting out. And when I started to interview them, it was a life-changing experience for me. And I have a real activist background and I felt like I had to do something. Mm -hmm. So for my last semester, which was in LA at the school I was at, I volunteered for the Los Angeles Commission on Assaults Against Women as a rape and domestic violence counselor. Mm which is now, they're now known as peace over violence, but mm. it was a life-changing experience. As soon as I yeah. started doing the training, you go through this intensive 60-hour training where you um, learn about the law, you learn about the psychology, you learn about, you know, just really everything about mm-hmm. violence against women. Yeah. And you start to do in the training, practice trains where you are doing counseling, they give you counseling skills. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I started doing it, I knew I found my calling. Yeah. And I applied for graduate school and um, it was just the right fit and a really amazing experience. And what happened in grad school was that um, I uh, was in a class on eating disorders and was mm-hmm. very outspoken yeah. as anyone who has watched season three of couples mm-hmm. therapy knows, cause I've been very public about my own recovery mm-hmm. that, you know, I had an eating disorder for a decade. Mm-hmm. I consider myself to be recovered. So I was very outspoken. The teacher was going to be on channel two action news with Winnie King. Mm-hmm. And, you know, bear in mind, this was in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Like there was no Dr. Phil. There yeah. was like, 
And I did this segment with her where I talked about eating disorders and recovery. And there was one other woman in the class who was invited to, and they ended up using almost exclusively my footage. Mm -hmm. And it hit me. I can, instead of seeing my office with one person, I could potentially impact millions of people. And I was like, wow, I think this is something I want to do. So I started to go on shows. Like I had a friend who promote was promoting a book on eating disorder recovery. I went mm-hmm. and I talked about that. Producers started to see me and say, hey, I'd like you to come on my show. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, I was talking about a lot of eating disorders, which was also mm-hmm. what I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on. Okay. But gradually, it kind of expanded to all the other things that I do. Mm-hmm. I started writing a parenting column for Los Angeles Family Magazine that, and 10 other magazines. And that mm-hmm. kind of became my first book. And then I started doing radio and doing more relationship questions and then couples therapy and I became more known for couples and family therapy and family so on and so forth yeah it's really branched out to so many things um and being someone uh you know who was working through your own recovery or considered yourself to be recovered at that point um how did you feel going into this field being a helper um I know a lot of people will email and say you know well I was just diagnosed with you know bipolar 2 like how can I actually major in psychology now like how can I go on to actually help people when you know I have this disorder myself Well, first of all, I think that our own experiences recovering from things Mm -hmm. and conquering things helps us be better therapists. There Mm -hmm. are no human beings and certainly no therapists who are perfect. And I wouldn't trust someone who was Mm -hmm. to do therapy because they just, they can't relate. They're not going to have compassion. They're just Mm -hmm. not going to get it. And I think that our experiences and our struggles in life make us better therapists. They make us more compassionate. They make us understand different perspectives. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can understand eating disorders, you can understand substance abuse. If you can Mm -hmm. understand substance abuse, you can understand sex addiction. You can understand, Mm -hmm. like, it just helps you understand on a visceral, more personal level. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think um, it's really a shame that uh, mental health professionals in particular have this different standard, at least from society and like my experience from the show and seeing how America views um, therapists, you know, that it's, there's this really negative outlook that like, oh, well, if you're going to do this as a therapist, then you must need a therapist. Yeah. And you know what? Look, (laughs) all therapists need therapists. Exactly. That's what I said. Yeah. Look, in graduate school, they require us to do Mm -hmm. therapy. I've had like 30 years of therapy. I hope I will always be in therapy, Mm -hmm. always looking to grow and and improve Mm -hmm. myself for my whole life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, that's part of the responsibility of Mm -hmm. doing what I do. And well, I don't think you can help people if you are in the crux of a crisis, if you are Mm -hmm. in an eating disorder and are non-functional, not able to get out of bed, if you are bipolar, not taking your medication, not going to therapy, Mm -hmm. not working on yourself. No, then you're not in a place. You've got to put out the fire first Mm -hmm. before you can help other people put out their fire. Yeah. Definitely. I, I think that's a, a very good w- good way to look at it as opposed to being very harsh on yourself and just saying that overall this isn't going to work for you and you can't do it. Yeah. Um, I, find, I find it very encouraging as well to be open about our stories in that way, especially as therapists, because yeah. I, I hope that it only encourages other people to continue to do the same. And the more that we're all doing that, then I think the better off all of our connections with each other will be. Absolutely. And I also think like you're saying that there are too many people who say, I really want to go into this field who could be great in this field mm-hmm. who think, oh, because I'm not perfect, I can't. Mm-hmm. And, and that's wrong. 
Yeah. And also the people that are already in the field are not perfect. No, that is for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's important to be careful to uh, not put that label on people in in any helping field. Um, And then I'm curious for you what kind of advice you would give to someone that is entering the field or that is currently in the field um, as a put, you know, just in, in terms of feeling good about who they are as a therapist and feeling like they're doing successful work. Um, a few things. Um, first of all, really read. Mm-hmm. Um, read a lot. Learn about different approaches, different techniques. Mm-hmm. Be eclectic. You know, there mm-hmm. are different phases in therapy where, you know, for, there's a period of time where it's like, you don't say you're eclectic. It's the kiss mm-hmm. of death. And then there's a period where it's like, oh, everybody's eclectic. But I really do think we have to be skilled in every area yeah. and really cater to the individual client. There mm-hmm. are people who say like, oh, I'm a family therapist. I only take that approach. I'm object relations. Mm-hmm. You can't be only everything, only one yeah. thing and help a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. Um, going through grad school, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, what, what's your approach going to be? And and for me, it was very much like, I'm going to take more of an integrated approach dependent upon yeah. whatever the client is struggling with, because one approach is not going to work for every client. It, absolutely. And, and I think also that you have to study the master, study the people who you really respect, mm-hmm. watch videos of them, watch them in action, learn from their mm-hmm. techniques, be willing to experiment, especially when you're in a clinic setting, especially mm-hmm. when you are learning, you have supervisors to help you to say like, hey, that worked, that didn't work, that was okay, that mm-hmm. wasn't. As long as you're following the ethics of the profession, yeah. that it's important to be able to find yourself. And, and it takes a while, I know it did for me, to integrate who I am as a human being, who I am as a therapist into one being. And then for me, there was also this other step of who I am in the public eye and who I am as a therapist and who I am Mm -hmm. as a being to be consistent because that's authentically who I am. Mm -hmm. Like it or not, and there are people who love it and people who don't, and that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if you can um, touch a little bit more on what that process and and experience has been like for you because I think identity as a counselor is something so many people struggle with, especially when they're starting off. When I first started off, I was very, very young. I graduated Mm -hmm. early. Same. I was, you know, in my very early 20s when I was at a clinic and I had a supervisor um, who I think in retrospect probably felt threatened by me and kind of was very, her thing was you're very attractive. You bring that into the room. You need yep. to be careful. You need to cover up. You need to play it down. You like, I literally yeah. did not wear high heels for the first 15 years yeah. of my career. Oh I didn't wear jeans yeah. for the first probably 20 years mm-hmm. of my career. And I felt like I needed to be extra conservative and extra careful because of those messages. And on some level, I think it was good Mm -hmm. because it made me aware of what I'm bringing into the room, especially with Mm -hmm. male clients. But on the other hand, she was so hypersensitive to it that I kind of, um, I think I was more neutral Mm -hmm. for a long time. And then I really started to integrate like who I am as a person into who I am as a therapist. And that's my sweet spot. That's, Mm -hmm. that's where I do my best therapy. And then the same thing with who I am on TV as a therapist is very Mm -hmm. consistent. You can talk to any one of my friends who's like, yeah, that's her. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's who I had dinner with. Like there isn't, and it is unlike, you know, an actor or unlike, 
people mm-hmm. on certain scripted shows where they play the villain or they play this sort of character or they the producer kind of pigeonholes them into this mm-hmm. corner. I am who I am. Yeah. And this is all of me, good or bad. And that's what I'm comfortable with. And I'm so comfortable with it that if someone else isn't, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first started doing couples therapy, I was laugh at it because season one, you know, nobody knew what to expect, yeah. you know, including the cast. Mm-hmm. And um, as many people know, I have a bit of a mouth like a sailor. I grew up mm-hmm. in the entertainment industry. My parents yeah. are songwriters. I grew up in recording studios. Like mm-hmm. it, it just, that's just who I am and part of who I am as a therapist, as a person. And when I would say fuck in a session, yeah. people flipped out. Yeah. Like, People were tweeting and like, she's so unprofessional. I can't mm-hmm. believe it. This is so yeah. horrible. And I Me was like, cussing was like, she shouldn't be allowed to be a therapist. Yeah, and I'm no, like, totally. And, and, you know, it was, it kind of, I didn't take it too, too seriously because mm-hmm. I know the quality of the work I do is so yeah. amazing and I have total confidence in it. Mm-hmm. And so when people, I had one person I remember tweeting me and saying, we study your work in couples therapy in our clinic to know what not to do because you're so terrible Mm. and unethical and I can't believe all of these things you do and you say fuck and it's horrible. Hmm. Season two, people were writing saying, I love that you say fuck. I love that you're authentic. I love that you're clearly who you are. We watch you in our our clinic to study exactly what we should be (laughs) doing as a therapist. And I just stuck to being true to who I am Mm -hmm. and what I believe as a therapist and listening to my instincts and Mm. following who I am and what I believe in, regardless of what the input was. Yeah. I mean, that for me is so like empowering to hear because especially my experience on the show and then just being a therapist as well and all those different identity parts of ourselves, you know, it's a a large lesson I've learned is that you cannot please everyone. That's for Um, sure. and And you have to please you. And and do what you believe is right, is ethical, is the best work possible Mm -hmm. and is authentic. Yeah. And I think that, again, when we're doing the work that feels the most authentic to us, even if it doesn't necessarily prescribe to what people put as this box of what a therapist should look like, um, that that is when we get the most, you know, effective work done and when we can be the most happiest with ourselves, um, in all those different layers of our identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I, I was curious, too, if you had actually got any uh, negative feedback from the show. Um, and it's it's interesting yeah. to see how, how that shifts, how it changes. Yeah, look, everybody has an opinion and, um, you know, God bless them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're watching and you're learning something, whether you agree with me or not, mm-hmm. that's great. Mm-hmm. That's why I do what I do. And, you know, one of the things that my fans have really enjoyed about me on social media is mm-hmm. that... I'll engage. If someone is, is having an intelligent conversation, they can say, I don't understand why you did this. Mm-hmm. I'll tweet back and say, hey, this yeah. is why. Or, you know, if they feel like I did something that was bizarre, like mm-hmm. I'll I'll say, hey, this was my methodology. Hmm. As long as it's an intelligent conversation. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the time, those conversations end up turning around and going really well and I enlighten someone or they enlighten me and Mm -hmm. it's a positive interaction. It's where people are just nasty and and haters and awful and hiding behind, you know, Twitter eggs Mm -hmm. that, you know, that I don't engage in. But when it's intelligent and and thoughtful, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, 
I'm really curious, too, to hear a little bit about how um, being someone, being a therapist, being a public figure, and also being open um, with your eating disorder of how, of, what, of how you kind of managed the feedback that you got in that, in that area. Yeah, that was easy because it was 100% positive. Like, there was, okay, there yeah. was nothing negative mm-hmm. with that. And, you know, also, you know, I am, like... 30 years into recovery. So yeah. it's not like it's fresh and new. Mm-hmm. So it's it it's not an area where someone can really hurt me because mm-hmm. it's not there's not pain there anymore. Yeah. Like it's something that I've really worked through. Mm-hmm. Um and it made me feel great to be able to share my experience yeah. and help people heal. And that was yeah. consistently what happened. First of all, it helped Abby in season mm-hmm. 3 and consistently people were writing me, tweeting at me, mm-hmm. you know, emailing me, Facebooking me saying like, wow, you really helped me. I didn't know it was possible to recover. You yeah. know, that's one of the things with eating disorders mm-hmm. that people say, oh, you never truly recover. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that's not the case. Yeah. Food's a non-issue for me. Mm-hmm. Like I eat a variety of foods. I don't withhold anything from myself. I don't restrict. Mm-hmm. I'm happy with my body. Like it's all good. Yeah, um, we've done two uh, two episodes on eating disorders. Um, yeah, and when we had the Alliance for uh, Eating Disorders Awareness organization come on, and um, the founder of that shared a lot about her experience, and the big emphasis on that was like recovery is possible. Yeah, um, so I'm really glad that you've been able to help people with with sharing that. Um, and like you said, I think it definitely helps that you had already kind of been through that experience where if it were something that you were in the in middle the, of, yeah, that would the, have been different. Yes, for very, sure. very. Um, and you said that you, you started off kind of young in the field yeah. um, and you've been working now for how long in the field? Almost 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I started in the early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things that... I've struggled with and that, you know, a lot of my listeners have wrote in struggling with is, you know, being fresh out of school and having this, this need to prove yourself as a young woman in the field. Um, and especially like you mentioned earlier with working with, you know, certain male populations and being Mm -hmm. told these messages and, um, you know, I'm curious for you how it's, how it's spanned out over the years. Like if you had this need to kind of prove yourself and how, how it's, got to where you are now? Um, I didn't feel a need to prove myself in terms of like, oh, a male client's not going to take me seriously. Mm -hmm. Or um, I didn't feel like, oh, as a woman, I am at a disadvantage in the room. Mm -hmm. But where I was hyper-conscious of it was in terms of my education, that I felt like if I'm a woman going into a helping profession, I'm going to get a doctorate Mm -hmm. because I think that that's an important part of... Um, adding value to what I bring Mm -hmm. to the table. And what I did find was when I had that, that, you know, PsyD behind my name and people call me doctor, there is a different dynamic that there is a kind of almost a reverence to Mm -hmm. the doctorate that I think helps the work Mm -hmm. um, and has been very positive. Definitely, yeah, as opposed to someone with a master's like me where I think there's, there's this need to like, prove yourself. Like, how are you credible? Like how many years of experience have you had? Totally. Like all of those yeah. things. And, and look, I know lots of people who have masters who never got doctorates who mm-hmm. are some of the best therapists that I mm-hmm. know. I felt that need because I felt like, like you said, as a woman going into helping profession, yeah. I wanted to have everything behind me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing I want to, uh, 
dig into a little bit here um, is a little bit about how you're vegan. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I share a lot about my food on my social and people always ask me and I'm not full vegan, but I do try to have at least one vegan meal a day. Which is fantastic. Every little bit helps. Mm -hmm. You're still saving animals. Yes, exactly. Um, And so I'm curious how you got into veganism and if that was something, you know, you had a lot of exposure to or you just kind of found on your own or? I was 10 years old and mm-hmm. saw a documentary that showed the slaughterhouses. That'll do and, it. Yeah. And it showed cows being slaughtered. It showed veal. It mm-hmm. showed chickens. And I couldn't believe it. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we live in a society that teaches us to separate animals and feelings and that they're sentient beings from mm-hmm. the food on our plate. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the suffering, I was like, whoa. Yeah. And I remember I went to the kitchen. My mom's like, oh, do you want a hamburger? I was like, yeah, I don't think I can do that. She's like, hot dog? It was like, no, I just saw this documentary. My mom had been vegetarian prior to having me. Okay. And then at, I think during her pregnancy or after started eating meat again, I think maybe her doctor had mm-hmm. told her to or something because a lot of doctors didn't yeah. know a lot about it then. And so I became vegetarian. My mom followed me about two years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about, I've been a vegan for a little over eight years. Mm-hmm. I saw Kathy Freston on television talking about the pain and suffering on your plate mm-hmm. and also explaining how, you know, in the vegan community, I'm sure you've heard this, they call um, milk liquid meat mm-hmm. because the dairy cows, they are kept pregnant mm-hmm. constantly in order to provide the milk yes. and that they go through terrible suffering. They're kept in small cages. Mm-hmm. They're fed antibiotics and food that doesn't agree with them. They're in constant yeah. pain in their stomachs or get, get mastesis so that mm-hmm. they have infections. They're on antibiotics. But then their babies, the boy babies become veal. Yeah. They're killed as babies. And then the girls become dairy cows. Mm-hmm. And I went, whoa. Yeah. I thought because... The milk didn't come from a dead animal mm-hmm. that no one was being harmed. Yeah. And same thing with eggs. I was like, oh, well, they're chickens. They're frolicking mm-hmm. on farms. But then yeah. when I learned that even cage-free, all that means is yeah. that legally they have to open and close the door to the cage for an undetermined amount of mm-hmm. time, which means they open and shut it and nobody goes anywhere. Yep. And they're still locked in these horrific conditions. I felt like... I can't participate in this mm-hmm. anymore. And when I learned about the health benefits, mm-hmm. I, it was a no-brainer for me. Yeah. And, and I think when people see the suffering, when people understand the health benefits, when people understand the environmental benefits, mm-hmm. you know, you can drive a Hummer and be a vegan and you're still coming out ahead. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we both have a super strong love for animals. And not only do I love cats, but I also love dogs. And I have two family dogs. And we actually use, I really want to tell you guys about this. Um, We use Super Chewer Box from uh, BarkBox. And it's like a monthly subscription box for dogs, which is like adorable that this even exists. Um, You let them know your dog's size. And then you choose a plan for like one or six or 12 months. um, And then each box comes with an assortment of two tough toys, two meaty chews, and two full bags of treats. Um, so it's literally everything your dog could ha- ever want. Um, every Super Chewer box comes with six products that total over $50 in value. But with a subscription, you pay almost as little as $29 a month. Um, our dogs absolutely love this, and it's so adorable when they get their box. Um, you guys should definitely check out 
Super Chewer and um, use the promo code. You can get, uh, for a limited time, get 50% off your first month of Super Chewer on a six or 12 month plan. Just visit superchewer.com slash Taylor and enter promo code Taylor at checkout. And your dogs will be so freaking excited and you guys will just bond even more. <laughs> so I love that we all love animals. <laughs> but um, but back to the show. Um. Did did exploring and and becoming you know vegetarian and then vegan um, play a role in the eating disorder? No, not at all. Yeah. For me, it was never. I know for some people it is, mm-hmm. but for me, it was never an issue because I could be eating disordered vegetarian or not mm-hmm. vegan or not. But it was not. There was no uh, restriction for me in that mm-hmm. because, it, and look, especially nowadays, mm-hmm. you can have vegan brownies, ice cream, yep. cookies, yep. hamburgers, burger, like there isn't anything that you mm-hmm. can't eat. So I can still, you know, my philosophy and I have an app called no more diets yes. that is based on my doctoral dissertation mm-hmm. and my own recovery and the work I do with my clients. It has little videos of me talking about the philosophy and gives mm-hmm. all the tools and the tips and everything. And, you know, for me, it's about, no deprivation. Mm -hmm. And for me, not eating animals feels really good and I can do it without any deprivation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where can people find that app? It's just on the app store? Yeah. If you just go to the app store and either put in no more diets or put in Dr. Jen Mann, you can find it. Okay. And it's it's basically, it's like doing therapy mm-hmm. with me. And it, it's not just for people with eating disorders. It's for people who are tired of yo-yo dieting, who mm-hmm. are like, Ugh, I, you know, I keep yeah. going on diets and then breaking it. I keep overeating. Ugh, I'm not happy with my weight. It's really for everybody mm-hmm. who's on the gamut. Yeah. Um, even more so probably for people who don't have full-blown eating disorders. Someone who mm-hmm. has a full-blown eating disorder, if they do it, I say you should do it with your therapist. Yeah. Yeah. Diet, diets are designed to fail. A hundred percent. Actually, technically between 95 and 98% of the time they fail. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, so I have some listener questions sure. um, about relationships that I'd love to go through with you before we wrap up here. You got it. Um, okay. So this listener says, hi, Taylor. My boyfriend watches porn regularly and it really bothers me, specifically because I feel that porn exploits women and in a sense promotes rape culture. I've also heard that porn can be linked to human trafficking. I would love to hear your thoughts on porn and any advice you'd have about how to make my feelings known without coming across judgmental. This is a great question. I mm-hmm. actually, I have an in-style magazine column mm-hmm. every Wednesday. I, I have a column called Hump Day with Dr. Jen. And a few months back, I wrote mm-hmm. one. So a woman wrote into me saying, my boyfriend watches gross porn. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I do about this? I don't know what to make of this. Look, I have very mixed feelings about porn. I consider myself to be a pretty hardcore feminist. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as a therapist who works with couples and helps people have better sex lives, I think sometimes it can be a great tool. Yeah. So to me, it's about finding a happy medium. Mm -hmm. You know, there is more humane porn that is directed by women. There are certain sex shops that are run by women that really look at the exploitation of women. There is porn that is more rape dominated and that is not. The thing about sex and porn and fantasies is that what turns us on is not politically correct. Mm -hmm. And we have to come to terms with that. And especially as a feminist, that there are plenty of feminists who have rape fantasies. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of feminists who have fantasies to be dominated or spanked or whatever. Mm -hmm. And same thing with men. And so I think that a big part of having a healthy sex life is for yourself Mm -hmm. figuring out and coming to terms with 
what may turn you on and what may not, and then it may not be mm-hmm. what you want to turn you on or not. Yeah. And then two, coming to terms with what turns your boyfriend on. And mm-hmm. if it's something that you feel is just so morally reprehensible, you can't get past it, then it may not be the right match for you. Mm-hmm. But I encourage you to really look at that, look, maybe he's in touch with a part of himself that you're not. Mm-hmm. Maybe he is um, open to something that you're not, and maybe it's worth exploring in a way where you don't feel like you're exploiting women. Yeah, and I think also for her to take a look at, at why it is making her feel uncomfortable. Absolutely. Like, you know, having it as a conversation of like, you know, how come you enjoy this? Like what parts of this are you enjoying? Um, creating it as a conversation to ensure that you aren't coming across in this jo- in this uh, judgmental, um, you know, kind of shutting everything down way. In a- a- absolutely. You know, one of the things about sex is that sex is a... a- there's a power dynamic Mm -hmm. in sex that can't be denied Mm -hmm. and that someone's usually dominant and someone's usually submissive to some degree or another. And we play with that. And if we Mm -hmm. can have fun with it and play with it in a safe way that works for everyone, Mm -hmm. we expand our sex lives. Yeah. It's really all throughout nature too. If you look at that, it's kind of undeniable. (laughs) Um, And then the second letter says, how do you balance building a relationship with yourself without putting your existing relationship on the back burner? She kind of gives a a little bit of a story as to what she's going through. But um, I think that that question kind of puts it all in in good summary. And when she says your relationship, like your romantic relationship. Yeah. So her current relationship, uh, she's been with him for about three years. um, But then there's all this other work that she finds that she needs to be doing um, based on some... Uh, grieving of a lost love from the past, from mm-hmm. guilt, from heartbreak of losing that person, um, and finding that it's affecting her relationship currently, um, and wanting to take some time to focus on herself a little bit, but to not be closed off to him. Well, look, first of all, I think that everybody should be in therapy. I always recommend mm-hmm. everybody have one year of weekly therapy, yes. individual therapy, and if you're a couple, that everybody have at least six months of mm-hmm. weekly therapy because I yeah. think it's really important to have that insight, learn those tools, mm-hmm. have someone objective helping you to look at yourself and see what your triggers are, what your history is, how it impacts you yeah. today, a neutral party that's been trained and, mm-hmm. and not a life coach, yes. all due respect to life coaches, mm-hmm. but a licensed therapist. Yes. Um, so to me, making sure you carve out time to do that self-care of therapy that you, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is that helps you to grow, whether it's reading, you know, bibliotherapy, whether it's attending mm-hmm. a sport group, whether it's talking to your friends, what, what, watching TED Talks, whatever it is yeah. that helps you tend to yourself, carve out that time and make sure that you have a partner that's supportive of you doing that work on mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. And I think also really important just to communicate that to your partner um, to ensure that you're not neglecting the relationship to make sure that you actually communicate that like, yeah, there are a lot of things with myself that I still am working through and that I want to make sure I set aside the time for. Like, you know, I really hope you can be supportive of me in this way, but like I, I might not be able to come over for dinner you know, because I have therapy after work. mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and if he's not on board, you have to question whether he's the right person for you. Yes. You know, it's that old adage of you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself Mm -hmm. before you put it on your kid or the person next to you, because if you faint, then there's no one to put on anyone's oxygen mask. And I think that, that that's 
Very true. And I think mm-hmm. as women, we tend to not prioritize ourselves all mm-hmm. that well. And it only gets more complicated in life when yeah. you have a relationship, when you have children, you have a career, mm-hmm. like there's a lot to tend to. Yeah. And then especially if you're also in a helping field. Yep. <laughs> that's absolutely. That's always when people ask my biggest uh, piece of advice for being in the field, I'm always like self-care and use that same uh, yeah. metaphor of like putting your oxygen mask on first. Yep. Um, and then an, another question that I, I get frequently and I'm curious what your answer is, um, is what do you find to be the best way for people to go about finding a therapist? I always recommend yeah. psychologytoday.com because I feel like it's yeah, super I, easy I'm to navigate. Yeah, I'm a big fan of their therapist finder as well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, one of the best sources of referrals are your gynecologist. Gynecologists Ooh, okay. tend to be really great referral sources for therapists and also asking your friends. Yeah. And, you know, well, the sometimes a friend may not want to share their therapist because mm-hmm. it's such a personal relationship. And, the, yeah. you know, sometimes people can feel like, oh, what if my therapist likes her more than mm-hmm. me? But asking your friends if any of them are comfortable with you being referred to their therapist or if they're willing to have you call their therapist and say, hey, can you give me three names of mm-hmm. people that you like? Susie loves you so much and speaks so highly of you. She, you know, mm-hmm. if I, boundary-wise, I can't see you, but can you recommend some people who have yeah. a similar style? Yeah. Good. I, I wouldn't have thought of the gynecologist. That's yeah. a good one. You know, and, and the hmm. other thing, and I think this is really, really important for mm-hmm. listeners, is that a lot of the time people say, oh, well, I can't afford therapy. Yeah. And what most people don't realize is that all across this wonderful country of ours, mm-hmm. every therapist has to do 3,000 hours mm-hmm. under supervision where yep. they either can't get paid or get paid so minimally. Mm-hmm. And that our, we have cl- mental health clinics all around this country that are staffed with people who will see you based on your ability to pay. You just fill out some paperwork, letting people know what your income is and they adjust Mm -hmm. accordingly. And look, we all started, I worked at two different wonderful clinics and provided the same service there that Mm -hmm. I do now, except it was low fee. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good point. Um, I think there are so many deterrents to therapy and obstacles that people find are so hard to overcome and finances is typically one of those. For sure. And also make use of hotlines. That crisis hotlines are a really good resource Mm -hmm. if money is a concern or Mm -hmm. if you call up that clinic and they say, look, we have an eight-week waiting list. We'll put you on the list. In the meanwhile, call up a crisis hotline to get some support in the meanwhile. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, And if people want to reach out to you for any kind of therapy, how could they get in contact with you? I only take people who are referred to me by people that I know. Okay, yeah. But the best way if you want kind of what feels like therapy with me is check out my books, Mm -hmm. The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six-Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection, Intimacy. It's basically like a year of couples therapy with me. Mm -hmm. If you're a mom, super baby, 12 ways to give your child a head start in the first three years, the A to Z Guide to Raising Happy, Confident Kids. Check out my um, Hump Day with Dr. Jen column in InStyle Mm -hmm. Magazine. Send me questions Mm -hmm. because there's an email there on where you can send questions. Those are really the best ways to sort of get pieces of me. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, of course, my No More Diets app. Yes, and all of those things will be listed in the episode notes descriptions for you guys to just quick links to um, and to check out. Um, but yeah, I think that'll that'll do. I know you got clients to see, um, and I'm super super appreciative of your time and for sharing your knowledge with us. Absolutely, um, yeah. my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks it's for having me. Great on. having you.
This podcast is brought to you by Wave Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows, including the Brain Candy Podcast, I Don't Get It, Babes and Babies, Coffee Convos, and Let's Talk About It. Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.